Hello to another episode of the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team discuss the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm your host for today, our automotive and battery analyst, Connor Watts, and I'm joined as always by our editor and hydrogen analyst, Bogdan Evremuta. Hello, everybody. As well as our solar analyst, Andreas Fontenar. Hello. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about how the global electrolyzer market might be following in the footsteps of the solar market of the 2010s and why Europe really needs to act in preventing this. We're going to discuss some very rare good news from the UK battery industry. Not a sentence I get to say very often. And how it's published, finally, its national battery strategy. Finally, we're going to discuss Europe's struggles in redeveloping its solar manufacturing, and then we're going to move to some short items from this week's issue. As always, this this podcast is based upon stories from a weekly issue published yesterday. This is maybe three out of ten stories out of the issue, and if you would like to go and read the others, then... You go over to rethinkresearch.biz, that's .biz, you hit energy, and then you're there. You'll be able to read the first few lines, and then you'll be prompted to take up a subscription. Anyways, let's get right into this. Bogdan, the global um, electrolyzer market. Hmm. Okay, so Bogdan, this is another story of China developing um, the kind of equipment manufacturing and the upstream hmm. supply chain, isn't it? Um, you're liking it to the 2010 solar market. Why is that? Yeah, so essentially, long story short, uh, the European Union is um, pumping about 800 million euros into the hydrogen European industry That's it. through subsidies. Many uh, electrolyzer manufacturers uh, are raising concerns that uh, because this, the, the auction is not limited to, to European manufacturers, they are concerned that Chinese manufacturers can, can swoop in and... Um, and benefit from sub- subsidies because it's essentially an auction, right? So the, the low speed uh, wins. So if China has lower uh, manufacturing costs for their electrolyzers, they can come into Europe into this auction and say, we only need this much per kilogram or uh, whatever it may be, which is lower than what the European manufacturers will be able to ask for because of higher cost in manufacturing. So they raise concerns. Uh, there's, there's, there's kind of two arguments running around. A couple of, of other companies said we're not comparing apples with apples here, and it's rather apples with oranges because um, Chinese electrolyzers are not as efficient as the European. They're not as, uh, as high quality as the European ones or the Western ones. So when you look at a, uh, a, a, the electro- a Chinese electrolyzer from the point of view of the total cost of ownership, Right, so not just capex, but capex plus opex over the lifetime of the project. Then they allude to the Chinese uh, electrolyzers being more expensive than the European ones because they're less efficient, less quality. So there's two sides of the story. But regardless, this is very similar to what happened about 13 years ago. So um, with the European solar market, where China essentially managed to kill off any sort of European uh, solar manufacturing through uh, undercutting them with with cheaper cheaper panel. I'm sure Andres can join, jump in on this and yeah, and I just remember not only did the Chinese end up being the main beneficiaries because they had more cost effective products. Well, 
Then the Europeans cut the subsidies for the projects and introduced an anti-damping measure. And basically the European solar market died until 2018 when they let the Chinese modules back in. And the Chinese are currently taking over wind. I think they're past 50% of wind turbines now. Yeah, they're, they're high up there. But let me ask you a question on, on the... Um... On, on the electrolyzer topics, because obviously, like I said, there's, there's concerns that actually the quality of the, electro- the Chinese electrolyzers are not as high as the Western ones. Was this a concern or a factor in, in the solar stories 10 years, thir- 13 years ago? I mean, nowadays, China is the leading, actually does sell the leading products. And the mm. Western technological advantage only exists in laboratories, basically. So, but I think even five years ago, I think you probably could then say that China would be more on the lower end, uh, or at least mm. not the very leading edge stuff. Like, take Russia as an example, uh, sort of an extreme example. The Russians actually had a heterojunction manufacturer. They still do. They had it like 10 years ago, just because that branch of material science was very well developed in that country. And heterojunction is the thing that is now being adopted as the mainstream, but they already had it back then. Um, not that it would have been cost efficient uh, and competitive on the global market. But uh, yeah, China was a, a sort of bit of a lower grade. You know, as so often, they start out lower quality, but they, they improve pretty quickly. I was going to say that, yeah, we're seeing the exact same thing in the battery industry. Of They started out with the lower kind of energy density chemistries and they developed over capacity and they got economies of scale and they developed leading companies within their specialisms. And... Earlier on, the kind of innovative products, the absolute top end in terms of quality and innovation was coming out of Japan and South Korea. But now we're seeing the bulk of innovation, particularly within the budget chemistries and the low costs, and we're seeing that coming out of China. So it's not particularly far-fetched to say that that's going to happen with the electrolyzer industry. Of yeah, they're producing low quality stuff now, but they have a tendency to build over capacity, and well, they build state supported over capacity, which lowers cost, which allows them to win auctions, which allows them to produce more, and it drowns out other competitors and makes them the de facto center for innovation. That I mean that that's another innovation. that's another good point of discussion because. Another implication that this can have is when you look at the global hydrogen industry, you need to ask the question, well, what does this mean for for everybody else in the global hydrogen industry? Because, Andres, you and I were talking about how the price per megawatt um, of solar capacity in China is lower than the than what Westerns, uh, Western panels are capable of, right? Chinese, you said, it was about $700,000 per megawatt? Yes, although that's Whereas... not just modules. It's also um, hmm. the entire project development, because modules are only a, right. like a, a quarter yeah, of yeah, yeah. you know. No, sure, that's that's what I meant. But obviously, the, the module cost is a, it's a big, big oh, yeah. factor. But, um, you know, but then the Western... You trade barriers, you can also benefit from it. Hmm. But then the Western... The Western costs are behind that. Is it about what one million? Yeah, yeah, for total project development. So, my question is then: If China takes the the a large market share in, in such a such an industry, uh, like it did in solar, because all of the installations are localized in China, is it that is it a case of the learning curve exists in a bubble just in China and that it's harder for the Western markets to adopt those? Because obviously that would hurt the global 
hydrogen industry? Well, I think one of the big ones that I've just been looking at yet again for this upcoming report, or no, it's actually for one of my articles this week, is actually electricity costs. I like to recall how the Chinese had to ban cryptocurrency mining because there was so much of it migrating mm-hmm. specifically into Xinjiang and into Mongolia. And then when they banned it and migrated into Kazakhstan, it's sort of empirical proof of what cheap electric- where the cheap electricity is. And if you look at solar manufacturing, I actually think that, I mean, you can just see that cell manufacturing gets along kind of okay, module manufacturing is easy, uh, then wafer and polysilicon, it starts to get really difficult to build this outside of China. And it, it is really the electricity price, because I think the cost off the top of my head for each of those steps is something like a third of the total cost is electricity. So it really matters. You're literally uh, heating polysilicon to 1,100 degrees to make it into polysilicon, and then you have to heat it to 1,400 degrees to turn it into a monosilicon ingot. So you can't, mm. you just can't do that if you have expensive electricity. It just doesn't make yeah. sense. Just to get back to hydrogen really quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what I was going to say is that, like, it would depend on what the manufacturing costs of electrolyzers actually are. Like, I assume they don't have to do that. They don't have to heat silicon to a thousand degrees, at least. Oh, it was more. My question was more from the point of view of of the 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 whole project, right? So, if if China hmm. install, installs a bunch of of solar panels and then they go through learning curve and then the the cost drops. Oh, I see. So, like you, projects, the Western, yeah, the Western market is going to benefit from the learning curve if most of the installations, the vast majority of installations, happen in China. Hmm. Uh, depend on things like technology licensing and agreements between the Chinese states yeah, and which other countries. Yeah, so. don't. I, I, would, I would like to say that we don't expect to see loads of those. Well, it depends on the policies of different countries. So we don't expect them to see them between the U.S. and China. That's mm. for sure. At least no, for sure. But I mean, they see from the that's why I was asking Andres. Well, what are the parallels that we can draw from the solar? Right, because we saw vast so, amounts. Of solar so, if you look at total project development and you choose to use solar as the example, there are other places that rival uh, China for cheap project development. Uh, India is not far behind. Certainly, the UAE which actually would be Indians as well, probably, building the projects. So you need cheap land availability and cheap labor costs in the case of solar. Uh, Probably less so, I mean, in in the case of an electrolyzer factory, it's going to be higher skilled than people having to lug 30 kilogram panels around, and it's not so heavy on land use. Um, So maybe that means that Europe, with its high wages, higher skill, less land availability, would not have such a big disparity. Like, look look at China and where they're building these particularly cheap utility scale projects. It's in the poor hinterlands where you have like Turkic peoples and Mongols and so on. Mm. So not not the big wage earners and lots of open desert, no expensive land either. Yeah. So what would you say that Europe really needs to do with this? You mentioned that there's a couple companies advocating for provenance rules and effectively saying we can't allow Chinese Mm -hmm. companies to be competing here, but that's because they're European competitors within the space. Of course, it's within their interests to say we don't want these lower cost competitors on our land competing legally with our product that we can't beat on a price basis. No, for sure. But I mean, I think in the context of energy security and everything we've seen in the past couple of years, I think the European Union would be foolish to not include a clause saying that you need to be a domestic manufacturer. Benefit saying from that within policies and subsidies, if we draw parallel to the battery industry, hmm. there's still Chinese companies receiving EU subsidies because they haven't 
introduced provenance rules. That's why we see CATL moving in on Hungary. Mm. Um, Goshen, I believe, might also be doing something in Hungary. Um, we see Chinese companies going towards European facilities and acting at the very least as technology partners, but usually with an ownership stake. Mm. So we're, we're not seeing full, um, well, we don't usually see full ownership of um, of products from Chinese companies, but we there isn't an explicit anti-China rhetoric as of right now that will depend on the um, results of the EV subsidy probe, but that's another conversation. It's it's about whether or not we see a shift towards the American-style Inflation Reduction Act. No China subsidies. If you're owned by a Chinese company, we don't want you here. Yeah. Attitude, which would be a pretty serious escalation in tensions. Hmm. But it's something we're going to need to keep an eye on. Yeah. So what's and, uh, what's our assumption? Is our assumption that the Europeans are going to let China take over electrolyzer supplies? Well, well uh, it's, it's a strong possibility. It's not an assumption; it's just a strong possibility. Yeah, Europe's not in a place right now to be um, denying the additional investment. I'm talking about it's primarily from a battery perspective. So do correct me if I'm wrong here, Walter. Yeah, disrupting trade and spending lots and lots of government disrupting money. Disrupting trade and jeopardizing its relationship in, with China because it already has issues with its relationships on its own kind of immediate landmass with the war in Ukraine. And... Yeah, like it, it might be a good idea to disrupt the trade with China and, and, and pay for your own domestic industries, but it's expensive up front and Europe just isn't in, in a very strong economic position right now, to put it politely. Um, yeah, with high interest rates and such, you don't really want to be financing massive debt projects. And um, generally speaking, Europe's in a particularly unstable position where it is relying on its international partners. And that used to be Russia. That was what happened there. It doesn't want to get into another situation like that with China. But with China, it would likely be worse in terms of the disruption to trade and the reliance on... Um, it would be more supply chain oriented as opposed to energy. But it would pretty seriously derail the energy transition as a whole to just excommunicate China from trade routes. The US is happy to do that because it has the mineral resources and it has the IP and it has the ability to finance these new projects, but Europe doesn't have that luxury. Moving on, speaking about another country that doesn't really have the luxury of excommunicating China, the UK. Some good news for once in uh, the battery industry in that we have published the national battery strategy which has effectively said to um cell manufacturers we're not going to be giving you too much money to set up shop here but we will put you in touch with our world leading research institutions which in my opinion is the correct path to take for the uk also just publishing a strategy is even if it's not a particularly good strategy when it comes to um encouraging investment it's good to just have a strategy in place, which the strategy is only to 2030, which is a bit odd. That's not a long-term strategy in the slightest. I think automotive companies are looking further ahead than that for their product development. But it's a start, and it can be iterated on in future editions of the strategy that take into account the investment landscape and other such things. With the news, uh, Nissan announced that they'll be investing another £2 billion into, uh, I, I believe, a third gigafactory in uh, Sunderland. And will be producing two more electric vehicle models within the region, which will do a good number on employment within the area, which is always good for up north. My conclusion about all of this is more or less that the UK is going to be relying on 
a few key gigafactories. There's Tata, who is rumored to be partnering with a Chinese technology provider. We're not quite sure as of who yet. I believe we find out in the new year. Nissan is already working with AESC, which um, is what well, used to be Japanese. It's now is now Chinese owned. Yeah, um, Envision. It used to be, and there will likely be one or two more of a similar size, but most of the money within the uh, within the national strategy is going to be going towards the upkeep and the improvement of research institutions, and it's taking more of a um, more of a view towards creating another pharmaceutical industry, as it were, of producing very low quantity, high value, innovative steps which mean that effectively British companies become the technology partners and the ones licensing out the um, cell chemistries or the manufacturing methods and developing that instead of trying to compete on the world stage with cell manufacturing, which when you're competing with Europe and the um, funds allocated through the Central European Authority, as well as funds allocated by individual countries like France and Germany, that's not going to happen. And then there's the US and China who are on completely different levels when it comes to scale manufacturing and the money that's being provided. So there's been almost an acceptance with this strategy is what it feels like that the UK cannot compete with that, which is a perfectly reasonable assumption. And so we're going to play to our strengths. It's not a particularly positive concession to be making, but it should be humbling, at least. Hopefully it means that the UK government will see, well, whichever government we have in the next six years, will see that the support that's needed to develop the battery industry is that we need to work with international partners because we can't finance these things ourselves. And we need to quite heavily support university spin out and the academic side of it and the research side of things to properly compete on the international stage because that is where we are best in the same way that we compete with international student numbers because of the prestige of the universities and the quality of education we need to translate that quality of education into commercial prospects so would you say this uh, this strategy is coming in a tad late <laughs> uh a tad yes um maybe about four or five years but realistically competing with the rest of Europe, only two or three. But it's a bit late, yes. We've known that the transition to electric vehicles was more or less inevitable for a good few years now. The government has been dragging its feet on any kind of investment. That's why we saw the issues with British Vault. And um, that creates more problems in terms of securing investment because there's just uncertainty as to which government's going to be in power, which government is going to be providing funding, the type of funding, the security of said funding in the case of British Vault because they were promised it but they didn't meet targets and it wasn't put forward. And the instability that's been wreaked by this is um, difficult to really measure but insecurity has been the name of the UK for the last few years ever since effectively the Brexit referendum but it's really heightened with Covid and escalating tensions with Europe and um, insufficient policy dynamics and Covid-19 supply chain issues and there's been a lot of um, confounding factors within the UK's production that hasn't helped it secure investment. This is very very late and so the government hasn't really had other things to be thinking about 
but the automotive industry is a key employer within England. And so this is a very, very important thing for the UK government to get right, and it's left it far too late. But in having done it at all is a win I'm willing to take at this point. So... I have a little uh, question about the UK's own battery uh, manufacturing. Will that survive? Mm -hmm. And if it does, is that because it's quite expensive to transport batteries? It'll survive. um, There are still um, significant kind of domestic needs for battery cell and pack manufacturing, where having a domestic gigafactory, particularly a big one where you can experience economies of scale, we're talking... uh, 20 to 4, 20 plus gigawatt hours, which I believe Tartars is 35 or 40, um, is a valuable, valuable thing to have, and that will be supported by the government. I'd, I'd probably liken it almost to the steel industry, where energy prices are far, far too high for um, proper international competition. But if you impose a couple of tariffs on um, batteries coming from other countries, or if you just support the, the the domestic manufacturing of batteries here by subsidizing energy prices or wages or providing tax breaks, which were all involved with regards to the subsidy deal that Tata Motors got in confirming its stay in the UK, um, then you can maintain a domestic battery industry in the same way that you can maintain a steel industry, even if it is hobbling along a little bit, particularly with companies like Tata or I believe BMW making credible threats of moving their vehicle production out of the country and going elsewhere that forces the government to provide subsidies, which encourages them to stay. It's not an ideal situation because the UK isn't negotiating from a position of strength. It's negotiating from a position of we're far too late to adopting this technology, our supply chains aren't ready, the costs are going to be incredibly high. Automotive companies have every incentive to leave the UK. But if they can get a lot of money out of the UK government to stay there, and it means that they don't have a significant capex cost to developing this new supply, then they might as well stay. It's an inertia thing. Hmm. And that point you about threatening to leave kind of leads into my article, doesn't it? Well, BMW um, <laughs> quite literally threatened, well, said, we're not producing electric minis at the Oxford plant, we're going to shift it over to China. £300 million pounds later from the UK government, oh, we're staying in Oxford. Wow, that's pretty dumb. We originally planned to stay the whole time, and yeah, it's um, the UK isn't negotiating from a position of strength. That's not as well as I was saying. They have to keep this employment there or risk a politically unpalatable exit of a major employer. Broadly, it's a good thing. We can um, leave it there for now. But yes, heading into your article um, European solar manufacturing, not getting off the ground, lack of subsidies. Yeah, um, relative to the US or China or both. Both of them. Uh, I don't know. If, I, I don't really know exactly how the Chinese manufacturing subsidies work. To be honest, because it's such a, um, it's just how the, the whole place works. Oh yeah, it's, market. It's, you know, it's like fish, fish and water sort of thing. Um, but certainly, you can make a direct comparison to the IRA in the US, um, where the the typical per unit subsidy for solar manufacturing in the US under the IRA is uh, half of the Chinese marginal cost of production. I looked at like all sorts of different things and it seems to be half for most of them. So that's a significant whack when yeah. it comes to a properly bringing the competition. How does Europe's compare? Well, Europe's, you, you try and find out what Europe's subsidies are and you've got such and such facility 
innovation fund this. Uh, the EU Parliament made another draft proposal to, to the Commission, or maybe it was the other way around, and maybe they'll vote on it again next year. And it's just, yeah, I, I'm really not, not sure. They're certainly laying out some subsidies and some support, and they're certainly talking about Uyghur forced labour and um, maybe even anti-dumping ideas, but it's always just talk. I mean, at the end of the day, if you want to have 50, let's say 50 gigawatts of solar manufacturing, someone needs to shell out at least $10 billion. Um, and they just they just won't. They just aren't. And the marginal cost of production uh, is just totally screwed by um, electricity costs, like I was saying earlier. So you've got REC Group shuttering its polysilicon production in Norway while it still keeps it open in the US. And you know, you've got its CEO saying, in China, our equivalents get to pay $37 per megawatt hour. That's, that sounds like Xinjiang to me. And meanwhile, we pay up to 10 times that on the spot market, he says. And that would, uh, you know, the Chinese electricity cost is, ends up at like $2 per kilogram, which is, that's like uh, 22% of the current market price. So if you multiply that by 10 times, uh, you're up at 220%, which was actually sort of there. Uh, you could actually charge that much uh, 12 months ago. And that's why this um, this REC group polysilicon place got ramped back up in March. And now it's ramped back down again. So they didn't listen to your analysis on the polysilicon market saying this is a short-term price boom <laughs> that's going to be gone in the six to 12 months. Hopefully they earned enough in the space of six months to make it worth it. I don't uh, know. <laughs> Hopefully well. they just brought people in from the US and now they go back. I don't, I don't know how exactly it works. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly a bit unfortunate that they only managed to ramp it back, back up in March of 2023 instead of March of 2022. Then they would have been much happier. Um, so it's not just... like Europe's problems with properly scaling up production and allowing things to come into production quickly. Yeah. Well, this is old production, but yes, same sort of problems, I guess. Even less excuse for not getting it up uh, swiftly. Um, so that's, that's Rec Group. And I think there's also wafer production in this article, um, actually, I think it was last month or a couple of months ago, Norsun, which is another Norwegian company. There's a lot of Norwegian stuff because of the cheap hydropower, but unfortunately, it's only cheap relative to the rest of Europe. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> um, we see a lot of like battery factories as well in the Nordics of Norway, Sweden, and Finland's got some um, precursor production, just because, again, you have cheap renewable energy that's relatively consistent but cheap relative to the rest of Europe. It still isn't competing with the coal prices over in China and uh, Xinjiang, but that's a matter of time. Gansu and Inner Mongolia, and they're, all, mm. they're, they're probably all individually bigger than Europe for solar manufacturing. <laughs> um, oh, so, yeah, that's polysilicon, that's wafer, the two furthest upstream uh, parts of the supply chain, also the uh, two most energy-intensive parts of the solar supply chain. But then mm. you also have, you know, you were mentioning... A company threatening to leave the UK. Now we've got Meyer Burger threatening to leave the EU and only manufacturing and only manufacture in America. It's pretty obvious why they just get a subsidy there that they don't in the EU. They also get cheaper electricity, and maybe it's maybe they just want to sell in the EU for a while because they are a premium rooftop product. So maybe they can take over with all of those wealthy Americans in a market that's protected to a significant extent against Chinese module imports. Um, not that I'm necessarily saying they won't sell into Europe at all, but uh, you know, 
so it's pretty bad. It's going all the way th through polysilicon wafer uh, and cell. That this EU, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just thinking it's one of those things where the central theme here is just of all of these stories. Realistically, is just Europe is hmm. not providing enough support to industry to be competitive at, at an international scale. I think I wrote uh, an article similar to this uh, two years ago. And it was I like think I've been four this year. <laughs> and, and two years ago, I was saying, "Well, will they will they support twenty five gigawatts of manufacturing by maybe it was twenty twenty five, maybe it was twenty twenty four for like poetic reasons, since we're almost there." And uh, you know, the answer turned out to be no. I think, like like I said earlier, we kind of have to assume that Europe will just not subsidize, not protect, in, until it proves us wrong. Until exactly. the way it's looking right now, I, you know, I even I even said at the end of this article, I probably shouldn't have put it this way. It's a bit too blunt, but I said in this in the end, it's kind of a non-story. It's a thing that isn't happening, despite people saying they want it to happen. They're just not doing it. That sounds like Europe's criticisms in a nutshell, doesn't it? <laughs> Things not happening despite a desire and a uh, well, an unwelcoming environment for business. I think we can leave that piece there and move on to some of our short items, which are hopefully a little bit less um, saddening for those on the continent. An interesting story here um, that I noticed is that, um, just going on to the raw material markets real quick, is that the London Metal Exchange won a, won a court case between itself and some American uh, financial institutions regarding the nickel short squeeze of March 2022 occurred as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and um, not an embargo on Russian nickel, but restrictions being placed on Russian nickel's access to the exchange, creating an immediate supply deficit. It found, and this sets a legal precedent within the UK, so basically anybody functioning within the UK uh, commodity markets within the LME, is that the, f the High Court um, ruling found that the exchange had the power to cancel trades given exceptional circumstances, and that it did not have to consult Elliott and Jane Street prior to this decision. If the trades were allowed to settle, as opposed to them being cancelled as they were, then it would have led to $20 billion in margin calls and at least seven clearing members defaulting, with the possibility of a death spiral in commodity markets more broadly. That was basically the official ruling saying it would have collapsed commodity markets, and the LME did the right thing because seven, well, it's a bad thing if one clearing member defaults. Seven simultaneously would be pandemonium. So some people would make a lot of money, but commodity markets on the LME would collapse and that would likely be the end of the LME as a business. The court ruling effectively found um, in favor of order as opposed to free markets, as it were, which um, the free market solution there, just to go full economist, would have been chaos. <laughs> it would have been pandemonium, as, as mentioned. Um, so it's a good thing that that's largely been resolved. And it does set a legal precedent in saying, if there is another short squeeze, then we can expect the enemy to do the same. And that should limit the extent of the short squeeze <laughs> in the future. Um, Finally, um, let's take a look at um, Brazil's electronuclear, having revealed plans to produce 100 tons of pink hydrogen per year using the Angra nuclear plant, and that, that will be implemented within two years. We recently changed kind of track on pink hydrogen, correct, Bob? 
Um, I mean, it depends what you mean by by recently. We put out a report on different hydrogen colors earlier this year. We don't believe that pink hydrogen will move the needle too much, but it will have its share. So, yeah, project like this will probably come online, find some offtake. The question, as it always is, the question in, in this industry is price. Nuclear mm. is quite expensive. New nuclear, new nuclear is expensive to build. All nuclear, you can only maintain it and refurbish it only this, only so much. Um, so we don't see the longevity in such projects. It's just a short-term boost to reasonably yeah. Well, reasonably cheap hydrogen because it will, I'm assuming, only be um, converting kind of curtailed energy, as it were, mm-hmm. into hydrogen. So it's more using the hydrogen as a as like a value store, as it were. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You're spot on. Uh, yeah, we're seeing we're seeing similar similar cases in in Europe specifically related to France because they have a lot of nuclear energy. So Europe uh, allowed the definition of uh, renewable hydrogen to include. Uh, pink nuclear generated hydrogen for the benefit of France. Germany wasn't wasn't pleased by that. Um, but yeah, essentially short term short term uh, market. I think that's our opinion. Interesting. Well, if um, if the battery can't be taking the um, taking up the slack there, and hydrogen can, then that's less curtailed energy going to waste. Mm. Always a positive, even if it is a bit expensive. What? So um, that will conclude this episode of the Rethink Energy podcast. Once again, these stories come from our weekly issue, published every Wednesday at rethinkresearch.biz. You hit energy, you see the stories, you click on, you see the first six lines, you'll be prompted to take a tr- uh, to take a subscription. I'd like to thank everybody here for listening, and uh, we'll see you again next week. So have a great weekend, and goodbye for now. <laughs>